Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Disciple Makers Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Stovall, and today is the first of our top 20 podcast episodes to be remastered. Today, we've got Dr. Marcus DiCarvalho, and I just want to pause and say, what an incredible name. Like, that's the coolest name I think I've ever heard. He's talking to us today about a pretty serious topic, building strong discipling relationships with your kids to help them overcome sexual impurity and pornography. These statistics that he gives are scary, and as a parent myself, I found this episode to be super, super helpful. My kids are young, but one of the things Dr. Marcus talks about is establishing a great relationship and rhythms of talking about these hard things long before any of these things happen. So that's the phase I'm in with my kiddos right now. I think this episode is going to be really helpful for you too, whether you're a parent or not. We all have somebody younger than us that we care about and that we're in a unique position where we can actually speak into them and help them. But before we jump in, I want to let you know that if you missed the 2021 forum this year, for a limited time, you can watch all the main sessions and all four main track sessions for only $79.99. Check out the link in the show notes to purchase that digital access pass. All right, y'all, let's jump in and let's listen to Dr. Marcus DiCarvalho. So building strong relationships with our children to overcome sexual impurity and pornography. Before we begin, we're going to do a little bit of a review. In our previous classes, we spoke about how we have been designed by God to experience pleasure from things that keep us alive. We eat a meal, we feel good. We sleep we feel good. And the reason we do this, God allowed us to release this chemical called dopamine. And dopamine is that chemical that the media has given a lot of attention for that makes you feel better, but it also creates the sensation of reward. So we repeat behavior and we keep doing it from infancy to our death. We needed that in order to continue behavior. But here's the issue, and the media doesn't really talk about this. When dopamine is released, it lays down new neural networks in the brain, new neurons that are specific for the things you ingested, for the things you look at, for the behaviors associated with all of that action, whether you go and have a meal with your girlfriend or your wife and you enjoyed the environment, you enjoyed the music, all of that is being laid down in this neural network. And once it's laid down, the brain wants to recreate that over time. And it demands for you to say to your wife, honey, let's go back to that restaurant where they have the good music and they have the good food and we love that pasta that's there. So the brain is constantly want, wanting to recreate. Here's the issue though. When we look at things like pornography or drugs, our brain produces thousand times more dopamine than food or sleep or even sex. And when your brain produces that much more dopamine, it starts to lay down neural networks that are intertwined with the neural networks responsible for sleep and food. And when it starts to do that, the brain becomes hijacked to believe it needs the pornography to survive, like food and sleep. And the brain, whatever produces more dopamine, that trumps everything and your children, and eating, all those things are second 
to that one addictive substance that has actually rewired your brain. And we call that neuroplasticity. The brain is plastic, we joke in neuroscience, saying that it constantly changed shape. And we believed at one time that this only happened in the womb. That's why they would say, put classical music by your belly so you can stimulate these neurons. Um, they'll be better students if you did that. That's what they said. Um, and do it within the first three years. But we found that this is actually happening through your entire life. Today, this conference, everything, it's actually happening through the course of your life. So the, the, the brain is constantly changing shape in these neural networks. When we look at pornography, and here's the issue with pornography, in the background here, we have all kinds of other addictive drugs. We have crystal meth, amphetamine there. We have cocaine. We have nicotine. We have sex. Look at all these dopamine surges. And when dopamine is released... Okay, look at food. Look at food right down at the bottom. When dopamine is released over time and we continue to repeat these behaviors, we lay down all these neural networks. But look at porn. It may not go up as high as cocaine and it may not go up as high as amphetamine, but look how long it stays at that high baseline level. Five hours. Okay? Imagine the individual who, um, let's talk about an adult here, who... His entire life, he's been looking at porn, and his wife says, honey, I'm going to go to the mall. I'll be back in five hours. And he, as soon as she walks out the door, he changes the password on the hard drive. He starts looking at porn, and she decides, oh, I'm going to come back in an hour. He's already enmeshed in it and has all that dopamine being released. And it's sitting there while she's back in the house. And he's got to lie He's got to manipulate. He's got to do all that double life behavior while new neural networks are being laid down that are responsible for all those lies. So he's got one foot in fantasy, one foot in reality. His wife is in the house and he's balancing between the two. How do you do that? By lying, by creating a denial system. And all of that is laid down in that neural network. And that's one of the reasons why we say when somebody who struggles with addiction, how do you know when they're lying? And we say in, in addiction, the moment they're moving their lips. Because they're learning, this from, they're learning this from the childhood. And they're learning this and it becomes a part of their coping mechanism under stress and anxiety. If they've been doing this their entire lives, when they're at stress at work as a young individual, when they're at stress in college, all this stuff becomes a part of that survival mechanism. So they will sugarcoat. They will do all these things to get through because it becomes about survival for them. And that's one of the issues with pornography is that this, we, all, we look at all the, the opioid epidemic and I'm, I talk on that all over the country, but look at morphine right down here, right down there, there's morphine. Look how much less dopamine is released from morphine than pornography. Nobody's talking about the pornography epidemic in the United States. It's huge. And we're going to dive deep into that. So this is neuroplasticity from left to right. These are neurons in the brain in an area called the mesolimbic system that over time through repetitive behaviors start to create neural networks just like here. And in this neural network pattern is that situation where the husband is at home lying to his wife, trying to act normal like everything is fine. Or that young individual who's hiding the pornography on the hard drive or the individual who there's thousands of images on his hard drive and he's learned how to lie and manipulate. All of that is laid down in here. It's not just the viewing of sex. It's not just I like to look at sex and I like to see people have sex. It's everything associated with it. The emotion, the feeling, everything is in that neural network. Here's another picture of neuroplasticity from left to right as well. Repetitive behaviors, 
because of the release of dopamine, it's almost like miracle grow on those neurons and they grow. So we also talked about it in a review that that area of the brain that's responsible for addiction, it's impulsive, it's, create, it's connected to the amygdala. The amygdala is impulsive, it creates this fight or flight response and it is allowed for us to survive but there's an area of our brain that's in the front of our brain called the frontal lobe that's responsible for rational thinking. It's responsible for right and wrong. It's responsible for our value system. It's responsible for why you decided to be here today, why you wanted to follow Christ. That's not an impulsive decision, guys. That is a decision. Can you count the costs and can you become a Christian with the past you've had? Can you surrender that, right? Those are executive function decisions that lie in the frontal lobe of your brain. When the frontal lobe of the brain, guys, is stronger than that impulsive brain reward area that I was talking about that releases dopamine, when this area is stronger than this, what do we call that? Purity. Purity, guys. When the frontal lobe is weaker than that impulsive area that has all that neuroplasticity, all that lying, all that double life, all that stuff. When the frontal lobe drops there, and why does it drop there? Because you're not working on it daily. You're not working on your spirituality daily. You're not working on your sobriety daily. Remember, the amygdala and the brain reward pathway that releases dopamine does not have to do any work. If you slept last night, if you ate a meal this morning, had three cups of coffee, you fired that area, the brain reward pathway, and everything that's intertwined with it, all the porn, all the addiction, all that, and all that strengthened too. So when the frontal lobe drops below that because you decided for three days you're not going to pray, you're not going to connect with a discipling partner, you're not going to go to AA or NA if you're dealing with those types of addictions because maybe you have priorities. Maybe you have a family that needs you. Maybe you can't make it, and it's just subtle, because you need to work on the frontal lobe. The frontal lobe is something that you have to do and decide to do. It's rational thinking. It's not impulsive and it's not survival. But it starts to slowly drop, right? And it's below, what do we call that? Relapse. That's why in addiction, when we work with people, we say it's daily, guys. It's daily. People who are like throwing themselves into treatment, when they go to group meetings for sexual addiction or alcohol addiction, they're there and they're going three, four, five meetings. They are just, they're enmeshing themselves. They have to, they have no chance. Why? Because this area is so much stronger in their brain and leading their way, dictating their decisions. And this area of rational thinking is so weak and they're trying to bring it up here so they can maintain that. When we look at addiction and pornography, this is all review, guys. And I know I'm seeing everybody here and a lot of people that I've spoken to at Harpeth or Renew, but it's important that we continue to reinforce the foundation. When we look at addiction, we look at the biological. What does your DNA say? Did your family struggle with addictive-related issues? Psychologically, what was your development like? Was there sexual trauma? physical trauma, emotional trauma? Were you brought up in the foster care system? Was mom there? Was dad there? Were there any parents there? What was the mirroring like in your home? 
When you looked at your mother as a small child and you smiled, did she smile back with joy and love and mirror that? And you internalize that good feeling into your brain as this is a good feeling and a smile and this is what my face does and you internalize that and it creates an identity of well-being? Or did you have a, a drunk father or a step-parent who could care less about you, that molested you or, or hurt you? And when you smiled at them, they looked back at you and they were like, what are you laughing at? And that feeling of, of anger, of fear, since we idealize and we are designed to idealize our parents and we cannot direct anger at them, we internalize it back on ourselves. And it creates a self-loathing that we carry as adults and that over time, we can't sleep at night. We have nightmares, we have flashbacks, we have anxiety. And along the way, we come across something like pornography or some addictive substance. And that pornography actually dampens all that feeling because you just come across it accidentally. And we'll see, we'll, we'll talk about that. But because of that dopamine release when you watch porn, it gives you that sense of reward and euphoria that any one of those feelings are dampened. And you've learned as a young man that by doing this type of thing or viewing this or masturbation, that when you're in bed at night and you can't sleep and you've got all these racing thoughts and you do this, it just shuts off your mind and it's worked for so many years. That's what you do. And then we look socially. Socially, what is your life like today? Are you, do you have a double life where you go to church and you're in a small group and people know you there, but at work, there's all kinds of things that just go and nobody really cares, nobody really questions. And you have a, a group of friends that, you know, you're flirting and you're acting out and doing all these things. Do you live that double life? So when we look at addiction to porn, we look at all three areas. And usually if you have each one of these areas hit, you are more than likely to develop an addiction to pornography. Sexual addiction in our children. So we look at these photos. This is my family. And when we look at them, what do we see? Purity. They have no idea yet. He is very coordinated. He's my little fisherman. Purity. We look at purity. In their mind, they haven't, they haven't seen these things yet. They haven't looked at porn. They haven't come across this stuff. One, because we have some very strict rules in my home. But two, they're just not there yet. Their brains are not capable of understanding these, this imagery yet. And that's purity. And we all come from a place like that. Depending on your development, depending on the abuse, depending on the structure of your home, things can change at a very young age. What happens to our children that they go from that to, let me share a brief story with you. Has anybody ever heard the story of Leonardo da Vinci and the painting of the Last Supper? Okay. So Leonardo da Vinci was asked to paint the Last Supper. And he basically interviewed all these different models over the course of six years. And the first model he asked to interview was this gentleman that he wanted to look like Jesus. And he wanted to find somebody that when you look at him, you see purity. You see somebody that the moment you see him, you're like, wow, this guy lives a life of purity. He, you know, he's incredible. He looks like Jesus. So he found this individual and he, he painted him and he worked with him every single day, six months, just painting him and looking at him, talking to him, seeing him, every single detail. And we're talking about Leonardo da Vinci, the eye of a master artist every single detail. 
He paints Jesus and he goes. And then he paints all the other apostles. But he struggles to find the apostle Judas. He said, I need a man that when you look at him, he looks racked by sin. He looks horrible. Just the sight of him is detestable. So he went out into Rome, into the dungeons of Rome, and searched all these men in the deepest parts of the dungeon. Just the sight of him would be, that's the person I want as Judas. But he couldn't find anybody. But finally, word got to Leonardo and said, we found somebody that would probably be able to pose for Judas for you. So he said, bring him to me. So he brings Judas to him and he sits with him and he paints him. And he paints him over months and months and he looks at him and he's getting all the details, everything he needed, so that when you look at him, you know when you look at that Last Supper or any depiction of the Last Supper, you know who Judas is, you know who Jesus is. And he paints him and he said, guys, I'm done, take him away. And as the prisoner is walking off, he looks over at Leonardo. I get emotional when I tell this story. He looks at, he looks at Leonardo and he's like, Leonardo, you don't remember me? He looks at him and he says, no, I posed for you as Jesus six years ago. What happened to that man that his life completely changed where you can't even recognize him? What sins, what happens to people that they change where that purity is gone? What happens to our children? As parents, we look at them, and right now, my kids are one, three, five, and seven. And I've talked to tons of parents when they come to me, and they bring them to me, and they say, when he was young, he was an incredible child. He was this, he was that. And now I can't keep him out of detention centers, incarceration, and he just looks complete. His face is completely different. What happened to him? What happens to these children as they come from a place of purity, and now they look in the mirror and they're so depressed, they're so down. And they find these different types of behaviors that help them navigate through life and they become stuck. How do we help our children? With pornography, I've shared this with you before, children accidentally find pornography anywhere from eight to nine years of age. Parents come to me all the time. How am I going to prevent my child from looking at pornography? You are not going to prevent it. It is going to happen. They are going to pop up. We are in a society where we use social media. We use iPads. We use everything for education. And it's just going to continue to grow. How do we do it? We can't prevent it from, from, from them looking at pornography. But it is our job to help them develop spiritually. It is our job to help them develop from a very young age a love for Jesus, a deep understanding of who Jesus was, the tools they will need to choose life over death. In Proverbs 20, verse 5, the purpose of a man's heart are deep waters, but it is a man of understanding that draws them out. We are their parents, guys. We, it is our responsibility. We need our children for us to maintain our spirituality. It is a reciprocated relationship. And sometimes as parents, we lose sight of that. We, God has put this individual in my life to deal with feelings and emotions and all this stuff about him that I've never had to deal with before as an individual. Because my feelings and emotion as an individual, I've had 46 years to learn how to deal with that. But then the moment my son, Rafa, was born, 
I don't know how to deal with all those new emotions and feelings about this other human being. And I needed him so that I can continue my walk and turn to God to be able to do that just as he needs me to help me pour into him, Jesus, the teachings and the tools. It is a reciprocated relationship. Everyone knew who Jesus' disciples were by the way they loved each other. Do you feel in your relationships with your children that there is that type of love? Do you look at your child through the eyes of Jesus? How do we help our children overcome? It's you guys. It's you. You are completely responsible for these children, not just if they're biologically related to you, but if you lead a youth ministry in your church, you are completely responsible, right? It's not just, oh man, you know, and I, I started out, I was in the ministry before, just brief, brief uh, talk about what I did prior to medicine. I was in medical school in the 90s. My parents really wanted me, you know, to become a surgeon. Um, and their, in their mind, vicariously living through me, that was success, um, and I was always searching, like, what is, what's my purpose? What, what should I be doing? Um, went to medical school, and in my second year of med school, I, I just, I, you know, I, it, was, it was great. It was fascinating, but there was still an emptiness in me. I was involved in youth ministry. I loved what I did with my local church, um, and I just poured everything I had into it. I loved it more than going to med school. And uh, eventually, I decided to withdraw from med school. I crushed my parents' heart, and I became a full-time pastor, and I led an entire church in Broward County. I did that for about four to five years, and in my four to five years doing that, I realized the sovereignty of God. I realized that God had a plan for me, um, and I loved being in front of people, counseling them, working through their sufferings, the empathy from my own sufferings in my own life, and decided to go back to medical school um, and choose psychiatry, mental health, and addiction. I, I agree. Thank you. And so I went back and I chose to do what I do today. I'm a full-time physician, but I do this now. And I believe that God had a plan and wanted me to use that. And so my goal really is to create the best disciples I can with my children, but also to pour into you guys and use this training so that you guys can do the same for your children and the, the, the children that you minister as youth ministers that are also here as well. So let's just talk briefly about children and their frontal lobe and an understanding of where they're at. So when we talked about that brain reward pathway and the pathway that releases dopamine, we're talking about that area that's labeled reward and memory. It's impulsive. It releases dopamine. It makes you do behaviors over and over again. It gives you a sense of euphoria. But in teens, they do have that area and it's charged to go, but that frontal lobe area that's called judgment, right and wrong, your value-based system, why we take action, why are we here, why do we do what we do, that's underdeveloped until about 23 years of age. Some people 21, some people 23. If they have true ADHD, it's not going to be fully developed until about 27, 28, okay? So now, we look at our teens and we're like, they look like adults, they can do quadratic equations. They can write essays and get into Ivy League schools. So why can't they 
stop looking at pornography. Why can't they make good decisions? Because this area, even though they look like they're adults, is not fully developed yet. And that's the area of the brain of rational thinking. That's the area of the brain that's going to be able to like deal with the impulsive area down there and say, like, oh, I just saw that image and I'm having anxiety and I kind of want to look at it. That's the area of the brain that's going to be like, no, that's just going to lead to a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. But they don't have a fully developed area there. That's why when they start out their mornings and they, you know, they're doing great in the morning, but they're allowed to look at all kinds of social media in the middle of the day. Somebody posts something about them on social media that's negative in nature. Their amygdala is firing, saying you're a loser, you're no good, you're, they're reacting, it's about survival. And they don't have a fully developed frontal lobe in order to deal with that. And that can cause, lead to suicide, depression, and anxiety. And that's a reality, guys. The second leading cause of kids ages 10 to 21 in the United States today is suicide. Okay? So they don't have a fully developed frontal lobe to navigate through and make good decisions. So where do they get their frontal lobes from? Can anybody say? Parents, boom, frontal lobe, parents involved in their lives, knowing what's going on, not letting them use these certain things on social media, involve, who are their friends, who are the parents, what are they doing? When I was raised in New York City, there was an incredible commercial. Every single hour it would come on, and I'll never forget it. And I was a young boy, and it would say, it's one o'clock, do you know where your child is? It's two o'clock. Do you know where your child is? I would hear it all through the day when I was young. I've never heard a commercial like that again. 90% of all 8 to 16-year-olds have viewed pornography online accidentally while just doing homework. Do you think when your child is in his room alone with an iPad or a computer and something came on that was pornographic in nature and you come up and he hears him and he's like, bam, and you walk in and you're like, honey, how's everything going? Good, mom. Do you think they're going to be like, Mom, I just, there was porn on the screen. What, what do I do? They don't know how to deal with that. Or, honey, how's homework going? What are you looking at? Get in there with them, kind of take a look. Mom, why are you doing that? Honey, don't worry, I'm just taking a look. It's okay. It's okay to insert yourself. Take a look, what's going on, and see. And if you catch them, it's an opportunity to have a conversation. It's not about like, what were you doing? No, it was like, I get it. I totally understand how this can happen. Son, you know, this is, this is going to kill you. Let's talk about this. Let's go through this. One in three visitors to adult websites is female. And that means that your daughter is at risk just as your son. The porn industry today, okay, they already know. They got the guys. They've already created videos for young male teens. They are focusing on female teens today. You, this is being researched. You can look at this because they know that this is an area, a demographic that nobody has tapped into and they want to make revenue from it. So it's not just a boy issue. If you go online and research what are the number one websites or types of pornography that people are watching, the pornography today is having sex with your stepsister, having sex with your stepbrother, having sex with your stepmother or stepfather. All of this jaded, crazy, satanic thinking that young teens are watching. 
So it's only a quick away. The revenue of the pornography industry is larger than the revenue of the top companies combined, guys. Microsoft, Google, Amazon, eBay, Yahoo, Apple, Netflix, and Earthlink. They make more money than all of them combined. And it's, if you actually look at some of the data out there, it's actually becoming even more acceptable. 29% of all Christian adults in the United States believe it's morally acceptable to view movies depicting explicit, explicit sexual behavior from the Barna Group. So in my personal practice, you know, what I see and what I've read is that porn will leave you with feelings of hopelessness, guilty, and ashamed. You know, I've, I've worked with teens in churches that are academically thriving. They look like great kids. They go to the Kingdom Kid programs at your church. They go to teen caps. They look awesome. And they're living double lives. They are learning to do this. Why? To navigate through their high schools and be socially acceptable. When parents aren't involved in their kids, this is what can happen. And they will morph into looking like and behaving like what you want them to be spiritually. So how does porn find your teen? If your teen is online, porn will find him or her, without a doubt. And if you're even questioning right now, has this happened yet? I know my teen. <sighs> Seriously, you still have to investigate and you still have to go there. It's so important because what it can fester into and what it can become is catastrophic in their lives. The effects of porn, isn't, it's just a phase that all teens go through. This is what people say. I've counseled people in churches and they, you know, parents, it's really hard for them to deal with something like this that's that painful. And so they try to cope with it. Isn't it something they're just going to go through? I had one dad, he's like, I looked at porn when I was young. I'm doing, I'm doing great, right? I mean, people will do that in order to cope and deal with the situation. Viewing of the opposite sex will change when teens look at porn. Eventually, your teen will stop seeing people as God sees them and begin seeing them merely as means by which desires can be fulfilled. This is huge, guys. Can you imagine a young teen who navigates through life where he sees another person and misses out on all the incredible things this other person can offer? And the only thing he sees is sex? And all of the weird illusions and craziness that he's viewed online, that he is not even allowed to have that opportunity anymore. It turns other people into objects of lust. In Galatians 6, 7, 8, a man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. Fantasy world demands reality. And the need for self-gratification will destroy not only your teen's relationship with the opposite sex, but also his or her relationship with a future husband or wife. It's just like what I said. You can't be completely in fantasy. You can't live a life completely in fantasy. We have reality all over us. So we have to balance the two when we're living a double life. It creates denial. It creates lying. It's destructive. It hurts people. You can't have a healthy family. If you get married, and I've seen this several times, I got married because of my addiction to porn. Like I thought that once I got married, I would be able to have sex with my wife. I'd be okay and everything will be fine. That's a satanic thought. Because what ends up happening is that that marriage is doomed from the beginning. It is so hard for that couple to be able to navigate through a healthy marriage, especially if the wife or the husband had no idea about this addiction and things start coming out later in their life and they're like, oh my gosh, who is this person? It's so destructive. But the battle can be won. 
In John 4, 4, my dear children, you come from God and belong to God. You have already won a big victory over those false teachers for the spirit is in you far stronger than anything in the world. And that's the message. And parents do not believe the lies, feeling guilty. So what, what I want to drive home with you guys is this, is that none of this stuff, you, you can't be driven by feeling bad that maybe you lost control or maybe they're like 13 or 14 now, or you just feel guilty that you did something wrong. There's always hope. You can reinsert yourself. You can help this individual. What we're trying to create here is an ability for you to save this person's life, save their marriage, save their, their families, have them be functional members of society, have them raise children. And you as parents have to be able to be vigilant. You cannot give up on your child. You have to go after them. You have to seek it out as hard as it may be. I know a lot of us, it's awesome and it feels good to be close with your child. And when you have those moments where you feel like they're your friends, I, I, you know, it's a normal feeling. I get it. But that's not really your role. Your role is actually no matter what, no matter what you feel to be there for them. So some practicals for our children. Talk to your teen and build an alliance. Never dance around the issue. You get right to the point. It's almost as if when I help people talk to their children about suicide, you never dance around that. You go right to the point. You ask them, I, I notice things have been tough with you and, and you're feeling a lot. Have you ever thought about ending your life? And it sounds so awkward, but that is a rescue question. When somebody's contemplating suicide, it's like when they hear that, it's rescue. They're not going to be like, no, 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 no. They're going to tell you, right? And we've studied that. We know that data. It's the same thing with porn, guys. They may feel shame and guilt. But if you phrase it this way, son, you know, I, I saw some stuff on the computer um, and, you know, I want you to know that anything you tell me, anything is not going to scare me, frazzle me. You know, I'm not going to be mad at you. I want to be here for you. Anything you say. Have you been looking at pornography on the internet? And if you have, son, like I understand it. I, I, I get it. And I get why you, you would be doing this. But I want to help you. And here's why. When you approach them like that, it is a rescue. It allows for them to be like, well, this is a total safe place. In their little minds, you know, it's safe. It's not punitive. I can talk about this. It's not weird. And you will be able to open up a relationship with your son. You are actually helping him move him into adulthood as a young man and talk about issues that many men on this planet may never talk about. Share with your teen the effects porn will have on his or her life. And if your teen is old enough, my son is eight, and we already, talk, we already have some talks that are similar in nature, but that he can understand. And if you as a dad have struggled with this or mom with daughter, share your life with them. Talk with them about it. It'd be like the same thing if you had an addiction to drugs or alcohol and your son was struggling. You know, recovery and sobriety is about transparency and vulnerability, okay? If your son understands or your daughter understands that they're not weird or the outcast or what's wrong with me and get it like, this is something that's plaguing a lot of people. They have a chance. 
So even if you do not suspect your teen is involved in porn, don't wait to have the talk. You just talk about it. Develop a dialogue from when they are young that will, that will mature over time. If your teen spends time online, he or she will be exposed. So the dialogue has to be started at a very young age. Or they learn how to be comfortable talking about this with you when they're young. If they don't start talking to you about it, they're going to talk to their teens or the teen's dad that's cool at school. And they're not going to be talking about the, how porn is bad, but they're going to be talking about like where to go and look at the cool websites. That's what they're going to be talking about. But at home, they're going to be able to have a dialogue with you that's going to mature over time. That when they're 15, 16, and you feel that they're stuck, it's not awkward and new. It's been developed. So teens who get caught, okay, it's normal and it's natural to deny. There's so much guilt and shame associated with it, guys. So it's normal and natural to deny. It's a great opportunity to strengthen your relationship with your child. Walk them through their, your struggles, their struggles. Show them how there's hope. There was hope in your own life. So if you had an addiction issue, you could talk to them about it. Understand this, guys. In my private practice, when I treat people for um, drugs or alcohol addiction, um, I urine drug screen everybody that walks through my doors, okay? And... Um, if they come to me and they say, I just did the urine, it's going to be positive, you know, I'll say that to them something like, I, I totally get why it would be positive. What happened? Let's, let's work through it. Let's adjust what we're doing. It's an opportunity to kind of change the treatment to help them. It's not to catch them and kick them out or be punitive. And a lot of doctors do that, actually. It's the same thing. When I work with somebody who has a porn addiction, they're not going to come to my office alone. They're bringing their wives, and we're going to have a really healthy conversation. I'm going to help their, the wife or the husband learn how to communicate with each other to dampen and decrease that shame and guilt so that we can actually be useful to each other to overcome this. Is that husband going to fall into impurity? Yeah, absolutely. It's going to take time. Will he have little dips and slowly come up and slowly come up if he works and really maintain good purity? Yeah, absolutely. If he goes after it, but we've got to instill that hope with them. And it's just like our children. When my child, if he blows it, I'm going to tell him, like, I totally understand why this happened, bud. I get it. But it doesn't mean, like, you know, this is failure. This is a part of this process. This is a part of your journey. And this is why we need Jesus. And this is what we're going to do to continue to grow and learn. Okay? He needs those victories, and he needs that coming from me because he's going to look at me as, you know, I'm a superhero to him. I'm the most incredible person. I'm God to him, practically. You know, so he needs to know that this person totally believes in him, and he's going to make it. So we build a healthy alliance with our children, and we create an environment that, that is the two of you against Satan. So we know that there are two forces, right? There's light, there's dark, there's Jesus, there's Satan. And when we talk to our children, we're going to start to develop this dialogue. Where does this come from? This is satanic. This is not of God. This is, this is about someone who does not want you to have success in your marriage. This is from someone who wants to destroy you, who wants you to suffer. But for a moment in time, he's going to pull you in and make you feel like you're in, it's all you and you're incredible. And you start to develop that dialogue that that is such a lie. And this is who Satan is. This is how destructive this is. And it's an opportunity for you to pull in the strictures and pull out the roles. Who is Jesus? Who is Satan? Who is David? How did he overcome? Look what it did to his life. 
be clear that you will never give up on your teen. I say this all the time to, to my kids whenever something happens or one, you know, accidentally smacks the other one in the face while walking by and, and I'll pull him aside. Why'd you do that, bud? And he's just like, you know, and I'm like, buddy, it's anything you tell me is not going to freak daddy out. I'm okay, buddy. It's okay. Like, I understand. Why do you feel like you had to do that? You know, it's the same thing with purity. It's like, so what happened last night? I mean, you can tell me it's, it's totally fine. Anything you say, I'm not going to feel bad. I'm not going to feel down on you. What do you think happened? So we always want to make them feel that we'll never give up on them. We're always going to be there for them. It's just like our relationship with God. You're just recreating it at home. And this is actually what they're going to carry on in their relationship with God over time. If we're punitive in nature over things that they do and behaviors, if we're negatively reinforcing things and negative reinforcement does not work, if we negatively reinforce their view spiritually of God over time when they're out of your home is going to be like God is going to negative reinforce and punish me and this, you know, why am I like this? And that's, they're going to project that onto God themselves. So be diligent in reminding your son or daughter that your love has not and will never change. Your teen needs to have a healthy understanding that you love him or her, but you hate the sin. That is probably one of the best statements for addiction all around. That all of this, and sometimes in, in spirituality and in, in churches, we kind of like separate, okay, here's the addiction group, um, celebrate recovery, but it's all sin, guys. This is all just sin. It's all Satan kind of doing these things and making you believe you need these things, but really just wanting to destroy you. And a clear appreciation for wanting your child to live a pure life. And you reinforce that daily. This is a daily approach. All of these things that I'm showing you are things that you're going to do daily with your child. You're going to be diligent. As diligent as you are taking them to soccer or taking them to school, you're going to be having these conversations with them daily. So addiction to pornography and impurity comes with remission and relapse. So parents, don't get frustrated. You know, if your child has six months and he's doing awesome, and then out of nowhere something happens, it's like, what happened? You know, or I thought we worked through all that. Or mom tells dad and the son's coming out. Timmy's got something to tell you. You know, that's not going to work. But these are the dynamics that happen in homes that people don't realize. Why? Because in pornography addiction, we are an extension of our families. We are family systems, right? Okay, and the codependency that develops is not just between mom and dad, but it's between Timothy and Susie and, right? And people start to identify with, I'm a victim, right? I am the one that doesn't have this addiction issue, but they need me. And then the person with the addiction to porn is the perpetrator. And I'm all bad, I'm no good. And they start to identify with that. And as we become punitive in our dialogue and we're like, he... He had six months. We did everything. We sent you to that camp. We did this. We did, and now here we go again. And what does it reinforce with him? All that work is crushed because I'm no good. I'm a loser. And they are going to seek out throughout their lives to reinforce that identity unconsciously. They don't want to do it, but they're always going to try to slip into the skin of I am no good. They're going to do it in their marriages. They're going to do it in everything they do. Because we have to live out what we believe is our identity. And our identities come from the people that are pouring into us. 
It's just like I shared in my last, my last talk, my son Rafa, he's seven, going to be eight. He's really into junior golf, and he is really playing well. But I'll tell you, I'm his caddy, and it's emotionally the most draining thing I've ever had to do. And I'll tell you, like, one of, the, one of the things that I do, and I don't even realize I'm doing it, if he's there and there's the, the hole there and he makes a little putt and he misses it, here I am with the stick and I'm like, oh. <laughs> <sighs> good job, buddy, good job, good job, good job. <laughs> and we walked back to the car after one round and he was like, Daddy, seven years old. Daddy, when you do that, it makes me feel like you think I'm useless. Seven, or you don't think I'm good at golf. I'll get emotional. In that cart, I told him, I'm like, I'm learning. I mean, I'm learning, son. I, I don't even know how to deal with these feelings right now. But I'll tell you, I think you're incredible. That's why it's just so overwhelming for me. But I'm going to change. The next time we played, I, I got with his coach and I'm just like, this is what I'm going through. I'm feeling these things. And he's like, you know, he's like, you're dealing, you're dealing with, you know, a lot of emotions and feelings from your past and things that you feel that you can do easily. And you think because he's got this little body, he could do it too. But he's seven years old. You know what I mean? And, and here I am, the psychiatrist, and here's the golf coach, and he's teaching me these things. I'm like, do you want to come to Nashville with me? But the next round, I was like, I, no matter what he does, I don't, I don't care if it's this close to the hole. I'm going to just be like, don't worry, buddy. Next shot. Next shot. We'll do it. I did that for an entire round with him. He shot the best score he's ever shot. I just supported him, believed in him, and that was it. We had so much fun. And that's the thing that we're trying to do here is that no matter if they fail, don't get frustrated. Don't get frustrated. All they need from us is just, we believe that they're awesome. We will discipline them and we have rules, right? Jesus taught us to obey, obedience, right? But he loved us. And so that's what we want to do. We've got to teach them obedience so that when they are older, they have that structure laid down by Jesus so that they can navigate through their lives, that they don't have to reinforce this kind of negative identity. When relapse happens, your child will promise that it will never happen again. Daddy, I swear it will never happen again. I will never, never, never. And they want to believe that. You know, and this is not just for, for little teens. This is for full-grown individuals. Relapse will happen over and over again. This will cause anger, frustration in parents' eyes and understand that relapse and remissions are common. In fact, in the American Society of Addiction Medicine, they define addiction across the board, whether it's porn, gambling, opioids, they, they define it as a, a disease of relapse and remission. In fact, if you look at most diseases out there in disease states, they all go through relapse and remission. So stay focused that your teen will eventually reach a place of lifelong purity. And it, it is doable. It is very doable. I want to take a quick break and tell you about something cool happening over at discipleship.org. It's our discipleship.org collective. It's an online community for disciples and disciple makers. And if you fit in either one of those categories, then the collective is designed just for you. 
The website itself is super cool because it's basically like stepping into a virtual church building with a welcome center, an auditorium for our main events, and even classrooms. Right now, you can get free access to this collective with all of its webinars, seminars, ebooks, and even disciple-making assessments for you personally or for your whole church. And this is a community, so you can also have the opportunity to connect with other disciple-makers. And while membership is free, there's also a premium access option, which includes courses, certifications, and online gatherings with other leaders from around the world. So head on over to discipleship.org slash collective and sign up for your free membership today. So healthy confession to God, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We want to encourage our teens to be honest with God. Okay, we want to encourage them that confession is healthy. Okay, as he or she confesses mistakes and receives God's forgiveness, we want that to be clear. It's not that they got to confess to us. This is sin and it's about God. So that's what we want to do with them. And we want to do it together. We want to teach them how to confess together. Let's sit together. Let's do this together. Let's pray together. Okay, teach them how to confess. So submit future choices, actions, and thoughts to God's daily. Avoid any access to computer, internet, TV, music, or movies, and any form of entertainment that may tempt him or her to view porn again. Note, must be done immediately. Special parameters may be needed due to homework assignments requiring special technology. Temptation is daily, therefore daily submission is key. So this, this slide here, I've had parents be like, oh my gosh, that's so strict. How could you do that? If your son or daughter is in a crisis... This has got to happen. It'd be like any addiction, right? It's like immediately we are in crisis. We are in ground zero. Let's do it. And in the beginning, it's hard. When I deal with people who come into addiction treatment centers and they're withdrawing from heroin, alcohol, those are the toughest times. And usually they want to AMA. They want to get out of there against medical advice. And you're working with them and you're talking with them and telling them that give it a few more days. You're going to start to feel better. We're giving you these medications. Let's get through this time period, okay? We, they may need to be on a locked unit. They, the special parameters need to be in place. It's the same thing with your child. If you find that stuff like this is going on and it's out of control, you got to have some serious talks. You got to be loving, but you got to put in some special parameters. Um, real time. So strategy for inside and outside of the home to prevent repeated behaviors, triggers, people's place, places and things. Guys, if your kids or you're leading um, teen ministries and you don't have a healthy understanding of who their friends are, who their parents are, who the people that um, in their youth ministries who are involved in their lives, if you don't have a good understanding, if you're not inserted in that, there's a problem. You've got to know, you know, like if he goes to so-and-so's house, like computers are everywhere, you know, uh, iPhone or whatever, they're going to be there on their iPhones the whole time together. You've got to know that information. Um, and that's really, really important. People, places, and things, that's a term we use in AA. It's, it's, it's the main triggers. It's why people relapse it's for porn, for anything. And everyone is unique. Sit with your teen to discuss a strategy of what are his or her triggers inside and outside the home. You can get together with a nine-year-old, a 10-year-old, and talk to them in a way like, what do you think it is? Like, I, we, we established that we don't want you to do this and you don't want to do this. What do you think makes you do it? 
and really for them to identify in their mind what the triggers are. And what you're doing there is you are untangling the neuroplastic changes that are in that survival area in the brain reward pathway because all of those triggers are laid out in there. The emotion, the feeling, the double life, it's all back there connected to the amygdala that's impulsive. So what we're trying to do is soften the amygdala and soften the triggers. We talk about in neuroscience a hard amygdala and a softened amygdala. The more you identify the things that make you relapse, you're softening the amygdala and you're less likely to have a fight or flight response. If you don't identify triggers, like I don't got a problem, whatever, blah, blah, that thing stays hard and you're more likely to impulsively relapse. So as you sit with your child, they may come home that day and be like, how did it go today? Did you try to like not avoid this and that or what happened? Well, this is what happened and I went by these people and I had these thoughts and I saw these girls and I had these thoughts. Okay, that's okay, I mean, that, that can happen. What can we do tomorrow to not do that? Routine and healthy full schedule. So chores, sports, a part-time job, volunteering, all can be helpful. Without a doubt, my feeling is that sports for a child with the exception that their, their academics are the most important thing, athletics are so important for your children. Team sports, um, even if it's an individual sport like golf, my son plays on a junior PGA team where it's a total team experience, um, where they rely on each other and they work and they ham and egg it, um, or individual. And the individual is great because I'm completely inserted in that as his caddy. And so we are like negotiating and working and talking, whether it's across country, football, soccer, all of those sports are incredible. And sometimes parents are like, well, he has no time to just be a kid. Yeah, he, put him in all the sports you possibly can. What is he gonna do at home? Yeah, I mean, teach him character through the academics and the sports. Immerse them, be involved in their sports. Be the person out there with them, be the baseball coach, be involved with them. Something else that's really great is um, if you could put your kids in debate. Debate is an amazing skill. It allows them to think through things, navigate through words. They're involved in a team. If they get to that age, do that as well. So it's not, it just doesn't have to be athletics, but all types of different skills and things that they can do. Chores in the home, their responsibility of taking care of the house. What are their responsibilities and how you rely on them, that you're a team, that you work together. Volunteering, service. Teach them that we have been designed to serve. Okay, things like that are really great are really great opportunities for them and it gets them out of like, you know, where they start thinking about things and they're developing some anxiety and they want to maybe look at something or they start to think about impure thoughts. Approving friendships. Choosing friends who are in line with God's will for your teen's life is a critical step to overcoming temptations to check out porn. You know, it's just like um, when I talk about addiction, I always say I've never met an individual maintain sobriety without having a relationship with another person who's maintaining sobriety as well. And it's just like in discipleship and Christianity, I've never met somebody who really can maintain a really deep relationship with God without a relationship with another person who's aligned in what they believe in doing it too. You know, that other, per that, that young individual, that young teen, you know, if he has friendships with people who just don't know what he's going through, how are they going to understand what's going on in his brain? And in youth ministries and in really good teen ministries, and I did this in, in my teen ministry when I was, gosh, 1998, 
99 around there, um, we, would, we would get the teens together, the boys, and we would talk about these issues. We would be vulnerable and transparent with them. We'd watch videos together on how to grow. So we would create dialogues amongst these young teens where they were aligned with other people's, and it was not just dad and son. It was they had friendships of other kids who were struggling with it as well. Corinthians 15.33, bad company corrupts good character, healthy relationships that strengthen your teen relationship with God. Have daily talks with your child about their daily activities with friends. Guys, you know, it's, it's so important that you are, I mean, I know that it, you may get tired of doing it and your teen may get tired of you doing it and they may say something like, what? Like, yes, yeah, fine, like super disrespectful or awkward and you hate going there with them and that pushes you off. That's called projective identification. They use a behavior unconsciously to take ownership over you so that you will stop getting in their face and they don't even know that they're doing it, but it works. And But you've got to be diligent like, no, 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 no. Like, we're going to have this talk, buddy. I love you and we're going to spend some time together. We're going to talk about it, okay? And I, I, I really would appreciate some respect. So when you have to be firm, you got to be firm because this is a serious topic. So Satan lies and the constructs keep uh, creeping in. So what is a construct? A construct is a group of words that are tagged to emotions and feelings that are unique to us in our past. So I'm not sleeping with anyone or cheating on anyone. That may be an excuse that somebody uses. Like I may be looking at porn, but I'm not hurting anybody. You know, like there's this young teen who's not married, who doesn't have kids, who doesn't have any of these things. And in their mind, or somebody else has told them that they've learned that it's okay, I'm not hurting anybody. Or I'm a good student. Why can I have this one thing? What's the big deal, Dad? I'm, I'm going to get into Harvard. I mean, what's the big deal? And in their mind, their underdeveloped frontal lobe, it's okay. If no one knows, it won't hurt anyone. And that may be something that they secretly keep to themselves. Talk with your child about some of these thoughts that come into their minds, their triggers. And this is the important thing about it is that they may have these thoughts that they may never even have shared with you. And you have to ask, are there any thoughts that come into your mind that at the moment you're tempted to do this, it kind of gives you permission? And ask them to tease that out with you. And use something called motivational interviewing with them where you, you actually poke holes in their theories over time and show them that over time it's actually not going to be okay and they come to a place where you're like yeah this is not a good thing so checking in depending on how much porn your child has viewed and the frequency there could have been significant neuroplasticity taking place in the beginning two to three check-ins a day with your child okay you're you know i i mean i did this talk uh in chicago uh, at the Pure and Simple Conference there, which is a great purity conference, actually the largest and the longest running uh, in the world. Um, and uh, I put on there seven times a day. People were like, whoa, that's so much. And I was like, really? I'm like, if my son was really going through this, I mean, I would be like checking in through the day, making sure. But really on an average, you know, like if he's in a crisis, seven times a day is important. But really over time, when they're kind of navigating through, two to three times a day. Okay, and I would ask your child, like, do you think two to three times a day is, is enough or should we do more? I mean, what do you think? You know, it's just like when I see a patient in my office, I'm like, I feel like you're doing pretty good. 
you've been coming every two weeks. Do you think a month is okay? No, 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 I wanna come in two weeks. All right, let's try out two weeks again. You may be surprised that your child will want you to check in more, okay? Healthy questions, identify triggers and keep them salient. Have you had any thoughts? If so, what were they? How did you navigate through them? How did you have a victory over that? Were you able to focus on your values and turn to them? And falling in love with God in the Bible. In Psalm 119, 15 and 16, I will study your commandments and reflect on your ways. I will delight in your decrees and not forget your word. Teaching them to fall in love with the Bible. Teaching them to fall in love with the scriptures. That it's not the word of daddy, but it's the word of God. It's, it's, we have a higher standard here. It's not just about me, but it's about what you're learning to fall in love with. And this is the structure. These are the values that you're going to be following. Mom, mom, dad, please teach me to pray. So, you know, when we look at the life of Jesus, um, when we look at the life where he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and I use this example all the time, and Jesus was there, and, and he was, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Quote, unquote, these are his words. He wanted relief. He was our God. He was our creator. He was just, he could not even think clearly. He was so overwhelmed of what to come, and he was choosing relief, just like the young boy who's, you know, comes across pornography at nine, and then through years learns how to use porn to navigate through his anxiety, he's going to go through that when he needs relief. But what did Jesus do? Jesus stepped into his life. He used his value-based system. He used what was true to him and what was important to make a decision and step into the difficult feelings, okay? When Judas came, Jesus didn't say, let's fight, let's run. You know, he said, let's step in, let's rise, let's go to him. He stepped into his life. Why? Because he had values, he had truth, he knew what had to be done. If we develop the same thing with our children, when they are facing these struggles, they will know what they have to do. It is not going to be foreign to them. They are not going to impulsively choose to just look at porn or do what everybody else is doing at school. So in, with mindfulness, I'll finish up with this, and I, I, people who know me, I've used this slide so many times, but um, these are my two boys, and you know, mindfulness is a very, very popular topic in our community today. And the example that I used of Jesus in the garden, you know, what Jesus essentially was doing there was he was fearful of what was to come and overwhelmed with anxiety and fear. He asked for relief, but what he did was he chose to step into his values and step into the bad feelings. He didn't run from them. He didn't control them. For a moment in time, he did ask for relief. And what was to come for Jesus was not, okay, I dealt with this, I was mindful, and now I feel better about it. He was going to be flogged. He was going to be spat on. He was going to be separated from his father, okay? So he still had to deal with the suffering of this world. With my children, Rafa and Paolo, this is Rafa the golfer, and that's Paolo, he's my fisherman. Um, before coming to talks like this, um, I asked them to pose for this picture, and I said to them, hey, I want to do a picture on this thing called mindfulness. And um, they came out in the backyard, and we took the photo, and they automatically got in the pose. And I was like, how do these guys know about mindfulness, or how do they know how to pose or what to do? And my wife was there. And she was laughing and she was like, they're doing mindfulness two to three times a week at school. Okay. Why are they doing this at school? Because the schools get it, guys. 
They understand that these kids and what they're going to be facing is so overwhelming to them that they don't build a skill set now. All the deaths from the opioid epidemic are going to keep going. The pornography epidemic is going to keep growing. We're going to have individuals that can't even look at each other with the same love and the compassion that Jesus looked at each other with. They're just going to look at us as objects. And that's where we're going to be going. And spiritually, these children are going to be dead. And so the schools get it. They know that it's not just about this, the, the gentleman whose wife finds thousands of images of pornography on his hard drive or all these older individuals who are stuck and there's all this divorce, but it's about our kids. Rafa is about to turn eight, and without, without a doubt, he's going to be working on a laptop and, and he, on an iPad, which he already does, and there's going to be all kinds of images that are going to come in that I can't catch. And accidentally, porn is going to come his way. And when it does come his way, and say he does look at it, and say he keeps it from me, if I continue to work with him and teach him these things, instead of being pulled towards impurity, he's going to be able to choose Jesus and his values. And that's the goal of this, guys, is to teach you that if we can teach our children how to be holy, how to be godly, the lordship of Jesus, if we could teach that to them from a very young age, we will have a chance to help our kids. With the, with the nine-year-old? Yeah, the way I would have the conversation is I would just tell them. So the question is, um, what if you were to have a conversation with a nine-year-old who, where the parent believes that there's no exposure at all, would it be different? Um, I, would, I would simply just be like, hey, bud, um, you know, if I'm wrong, it's okay. And this may be a little awkward or whatever. I just want to kind of check in, you know. Have you on the internet come across like any naked photos or anything that looks a little bit weird? And if you haven't, that's okay. I just want to check in and explain why you're checking in because this, this can happen and it can happen accidentally. Um, and I just want to make sure you're okay if something like that happened. Did it? No, daddy. No, no, no. Okay. And then, but you are like, your role is the private investigator, the spiritual dad, you are all those things. So you're just looking and listening and seeing like, did he get super anxious? Did he, you know, like, let me dive in deeper. And then if he says no, just leave it there. Okay. Then you strike the iron while it's cold, meaning a few days later, you can come back and be like, hey, bud, remember when we talked about that that day? I don't know. I got this sense that when I asked you about it, it was like almost like you felt like you were getting caught or something happened. I just want to come back and just make sure. And anything you tell me right now, I'm not going to get upset. And I would totally get why that would happen, why you would see some images. Like, and you could come to daddy about it. And we could talk about it. Did anything happen? And he may be like, well, yeah, this thing happened. And, and then you guys can just begin the dialogue from there. And that's totally fine. You know, but if, go ahead. No, no, there's no data to support that. It's just like the same thing is like, I don't want to ask my kids about suicide because it'll plant the seed and then they're going to kill themselves. There's no data to support that. And by nine years of age, they know naked. They know all that stuff. Trust in their schools. They know it. You know what I mean? It's better that you talk to them about naked. And if they're like, what's naked? Then you talk to them about what is naked. You know, like you begin these dialogues. My recommendation is that I mean, as young as they are to speak, man, I mean, I, would, I already started talking to my kids about all these things. 
I just, I just did, you know, like, you know, uh, as, as, you know, if it came down to like, what are testicles? What is a penis? What is, you know, like one of my, when Rafa was at school when he was really little, we had these conversations at home. Like, what is a penis? What, you know, like all these types of things. And in his purity, he, his teacher was like, just ask this question to the school, the class. And it's like, does anybody know what rhymes with Venus? And Rafa's like, penis. And everybody's like, oh. We got an email that night, like, oh. And Rafa was embarrassed. Like, they didn't, they didn't shun him or anything like that. But he was embarrassed because he just couldn't get why people were laughing. He was, it, his mind was just so, and, and we, you know, the teacher was appreciative of that. And I'm like, we talk about penis. We talk about the, nothing is, nothing is foreign, you know? And so, yeah, just have that dialogue. And, and as a parent, it's so awesome to be able to learn how to do this with your child. And I'll tell you something. If the intention as a parent or even as a, a youth minister is out of love and you're really trying to help them, even if you make a mistake, you're not going to do much harm at all, okay? But if you're trying to be like, you know, super, let me find, let me dig, let me, you can cause harm. But if you're patient and you just, you know, you're praying about it, you're talking about it, you strike the iron while it's cold, you come back, you'll be fine. Yes, sir. Oh, yes. Yes, sir. Why does pornography do that? Okay. Um, there are certain behaviors, okay, um, like gaming, um, gambling, pornography, there are certain behaviors from a physiological standpoint that activate areas in the brain that actually open up gates to release dopamine from a neuroscience perspective, okay, that do more than other behaviors. And that's just the way we're designed. It's just like opioids, right? For some reason, when you take a pain pill, why does it produce so much more opioid? We actually produce opioids. Our brains actually do them. They're called endogenous opioids, okay? But for some reason, the way an opioid is designed is it actually allows for that gate to stay open longer, okay? Now, with pornography, what happens in pornography, it's kind of a vicious cycle because when you're actually viewing pornography, dopamine starts to release, and then in the midst of viewing pornography, if there's, I'm going to use some terms, if there's masturbation and ejaculation, you are going from here to bam to here. So there's multiple, there's more and more dopamine that's being released through the actual viewing of porn. Very few people are just going to watch porn and, all right, cool, and walk away. No, they're going to fall into masturbation. And so it releases massive amounts of dopamine. The reason why dopamine lingers for so long is the half-life of dopamine. Just like any drug. A half-life means when you take a chemical, a pill, it, it takes a certain amount of time for half of that pill to actually be broken down and leave your body. And dopamine has its own half-life too. And it hangs out for a very long time. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So I, what I would say is that it really starts out with, um, you know, like I, I, my job was to bathe all my boys. I, I bathed them. And in that process, we would have conversations about their privates and their parts and how to respect their bodies. Um, just, I'm not telling them anything about me, you know, but then they may get curious and ask questions about mommy and daddy. And, and we've already established that, you know, we're bathing and we're doing, and this is how you take care of your body. This People don't touch this part of your body. This is private, that you respect this. And, and then, you know, they'll walk around, oh, Rafa, touch my penis, daddy. Or, and they, they may joke around about, but then we come back to about how we respect that. We don't joke about that, 
You know, we are we are creating a dialogue through time that when we get to a place where you're going to know, you know, you're going to become this expert in your child when it's appropriate via the dialogue and how they respond to you and what they're going through when you can actually insert that vulnerability. Yeah. I would, you have plenty of time, but you're in a great place to actually start talking about these incredible things with your child because you are actually creating respect for themselves, self-respect. Yes, sir? No, you'll always be vulnerable because of the, the neuroplasticity is wrapped around that amygdala. It's in that amygdala. You all, it's like, I didn't give the example, but let me give you one last example. So imagine you're riding a bike. Your parents give you a tricycle and you get on this tricycle and you can barely pedal it. But then you develop the muscles to move it and then they give you training wheels and they give you a five speed, a 10 speed, a banana seat Schwinn and you're driving it all around town and you're jumping curbs. You're awesome at it as a young kid. All the incredible feeling, all the incredible emotion, all there. 20 years go by, you don't ride a bike again and you have a family. You go away to college, you have a career, all those types of things, but you go on a trip with your family and there's bikes all around the hotel and you guys are going to go on a bike trip. And you're like, I haven't ridden a bike in forever, right? You get to that bike, you see your kids riding the bike, they're riding away, whatever, you sit on the bike and you start to pedal and poof, you ride the bike. If you, haven't, if you only rode the bike in the training wheel level, you think you're going to get on the bike as an adult and ride away, you're going to fall right over. But you're riding, the depth perception, everything. People call that muscle memory. There's no such thing as muscle memory. Muscle is a piece of meat. There's no memory in it. It's the neurons firing from the brain with all that memory and emotion that fire onto muscle to make it move. Okay? You will never forget to ride a bike. All that neuroplasticity for all the images that you viewed. Ask anybody that has an addiction to pornography. They can go back in their mind and recall images 20, 30 years that they'll never forget, especially with pornography. It's just sitting there and it sits in that hippocampus that's right next to the amygdala. So the vulnerability will never go away. Now the brain is a use it or lose it system, meaning if you continue to use it, you'll strengthen it, the amygdala will stay hard, impulsively you go after it. But if you stop using it, it will weaken, just like on that image that I showed you of the neurons growing, it can go back to its original and sit there, but it's always gonna be there. It'll never forget to ride the bike. Okay, so vulnerability. That's why once a smoker, always a smoker. We say these things, you're never going to, you know, you're always going to have those receptors in your brain and the neuroplasticity for nicotine. So human trafficking, you know, a lot of people think human trafficking is like um, uh, some Arabian Nights trafficking people through the Middle East and all these beautiful, there's human trafficking, there could be human trafficking two, three miles from here. It's everywhere. That is, that is a talk that I do that is like four hours long. The human trafficking and the underlying pornography addiction that's associated with it is a part of it, but it's fueled by finance. It's just like the pornography industry is fueled by money. It, you know, that's really what it is. But we use these things to lure these people in. But human trafficking in Jacksonville, it's, it's all over the, I've worked with several young females that are a part of human trafficking rings. They get addicted to heroin, they, they get kidnapped, they get pulled in, they, they maintain their addiction to heroin and they're uh, moved around in vans all over the city and sleeping with all kinds of guys. It's a horrible thing. It's actually one of the worst problems in our world right now. Right, like safeguards, like, um, well, I mean, you know, one thing is that there should be like one central computer like in the kitchen and nobody can be on that computer without a, you know, a parent in the room, 
Okay. Um, and you guys can make time for that. And that's very clear that if that's established from the beginning, that's the culture of your family. Okay. So we're creating a culture and a dynamic in your family. That's not weird. That's not awkward. Um, it'd be really great that you're connected with other families that your kids have relationships with that. That's what they do too. And you guys are aligned. So it's not like, well, I went to Susie's house and everybody was, it's mom, why are we like this? Right. That is up to you guys to do that. Um, as far as um, social media and things like that, you know, I, I just don't see, I don't see why my child needs to be as a young teen on Facebook or any, any, I just don't see why. I know plenty of adults who are professional, who are physicians, attorneys, whatever. They don't do Facebook. They don't do any social media, you know, leave a message. You know what I mean? And I think that's fine just because everybody else is doing it. You know, we don't need to conform to the patterns of this world. You know what I mean? And so it's going to be up to you guys as parents that you're going to be able to deal with the pushback. But trust me, if you do that and you build that for them and they go off and they become young adults, this is how they're going to raise their kids too. That's a great point. I mean, that's a great point. I think that social media, computers, all those, they're phenomenal tools, okay? But they also can cause a lot of destruction and be a gateway to sin. Just like a lot of things that we do, guys. I mean, we see it. We, we see the what, what can come of it. Um, we just need to be shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. You, you can actually, there are lots of different um, programs out there, apps out there that actually kind of tell you exactly what they were doing, when they were doing it. You can do, there's a lot of that out there. It's as simple as just typing in an app, uh, safeguard. That's a great, you know, like with that example, with the password, it's, it's just like the urine drug screen in my office. It's like, they know they're going to be tested. They know it and it actually helps them. Okay. But there are some that even though they know it, they're going to blow it. Even though they know dad's got the password, they may blow it, but it's an opportunity to, what happened? I saw it, what, you know, and let's work on it. You know what I mean? Okay. So you will, you will never rewire what's already been laid down. Okay. But you can create new wiring in other areas of the brain. Okay. So the, the wiring that took place in the fight or flight response or the, um, like what you weren't at any of the other previous talks. No. Okay. When you read untangle addiction, all of it is in there. Okay. okay? And it you will really help you understand. Um, if you Google, I mean, if you go on Facebook and you type in hashtag Dr. D or healthy mind, whatever, all of these talks that I gave here, I've given at other places, they're all there video. Okay. So I encourage you to look at that. But essentially what happens is this, is that the wiring that has taken place in that addictive survival area will never leave. It will be softened and weakened, okay? But as that's softened and weakened, you are gonna create new healthy wiring in the frontal lobe, which is your values, right? Which is their ability to rationally think through these feelings and make really good decisions so they don't have to seek relief and try to cut or do all these different types of things. And that takes time over therapy, over talking, over parenting, over that. Their past is their past, okay? In the last talk I gave, um, I talked about acceptance and commitment therapy, and that's gonna be on the podcast. Um, I talk about how we teach them to accept our past. As sad as it may be, as hard horrible as it may be. We're not going to take away from that, but there has to be a healthy acceptance that that is in the past and that is a part of you, but it's not in the present today. You are, that is not in the present today and the future is unknown and we have to accept that it's an unknown future and we don't have to fear the unknown future, but we have to live present in the moment, right? Real time. And that's what we try to teach them.
there you have it. That was fantastic stuff from Dr. Marcus, in my opinion. Hope that you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. So that was number 10 in our top 10 most played podcasts ever. Next up is going to be number nine, and I'm going to continue doing that until the end of this year. I think we'll wrap up just before Christmas. I got two links for you in the show notes. Number one is Dr. Marcus's book, Untangling Addiction. That's a discipleship.org resource for you. And number two is a link for the Digital Access Pass in case you missed the National Disciple Making Forum from this year. You can get that for $79.99 from now until December 31st. So make sure you check that out. Just want to say thank you so much for listening to this episode. Thanks for being a Disciple Makers podcast listener. I really appreciate you. And I hope that you have a great day and I'll see you on the next episode.